As the race to distribute the first coronavirus vaccine heats up, two frontrunners, Pfizer and Moderna, have produced stunning results from their phase three vaccine trials. Claiming to have vaccines that are over 90% effective, the companies have ignited new hope that we might finally be turning a corner after months of uncertainty. However, there are many hurdles to overcome before the vaccines are available at your local doctor's office or pharmacy. The FDA's approval process could be a lengthy one, and new research reminds us that outbreaks can still happen even if most people get vaccinated. As a light flickers at the end of the tunnel, COVID-19 vaccines are closer to the finish line than ever, but the race is far from over. Welcome to the Abstract Podcast from Inverse. I'm Tanya Bustos, your host. Our first story is about the promising results of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, which claim to be over 90% effective in preventing infection of COVID-19. Signs that we might just get the pandemic under control, both vaccines still have to jump several hurdles before everyone who needs one gets one. Our second story is about how outbreaks can still happen despite the widespread use of vaccines. New research on a recent measles outbreak serves as a teachable moment for the present and reveals a key lesson about herd immunity in 2020. This is The Abstract. Look the latest scientific discoveries and technology innovations from the reporters at Inverse. In each episode, we explore a single theme through two different stories. Up now, why promising early results for two leading COVID-19 vaccines are providing new light at the end of a long pandemic tunnel. Drug maker Pfizer says new test results show its vaccine is 95% effective. Moderna's vaccine, nearly 95% effective and appears to be more easily transportable than the Pfizer. You know, mRNA technology for BioNTech and Moderna, I think has clearly proven out that it works. It's safe and ready for final approval. The FDA is going to be looking over those safety reports very carefully. Millions could be vaccinated by the end of the year. What do you think that means for the months ahead here? The results are in. Not just one, but two coronavirus vaccines are more than 90% effective in early results. U.S. biotech firm Moderna said in November 2020 that its vaccine was more than 94.5% effective in preventing COVID-19. The news came one week after Pfizer and BioNTech announced a similar efficacy rate for their coronavirus vaccine candidate. Pfizer's final analysis of its phase three trial shows it was 95% effective in preventing infections, even in older adults, and caused no serious safety concerns. Both companies used mRNA technology, a new approach to vaccines that has never been cleared by regulators. Igniting new optimism at a time when health systems in the U.S. are reaching their breaking points, big questions still remain over logistics, and we'll still need to work through several challenges before a vaccine can be rolled out. However, here to explain where we stand and where we're going is Inverse's Emma Batwell. Hey, Emma. Hey, Tanya. How are you? Good, thanks. So just to take listeners behind the curtain for just a quick sec, we were just about to chat about the latest news of the big Pfizer vaccine. Then literally, as we were about to speak, Moderna releases its big press release that their vaccine was 94.5% effective. Obviously, huge news across the vaccine front. But for science as well, it was truly an amazing feat. So now that the dust has settled a little bit, what's your sense of this moment? It seems as though scientists are really signaling that this really is 
a light at the end of the COVID-19 tunnel. Do you see this as a real pivot point here? Yeah, I think it's really rare when covering coronavirus vaccine news that, you know, when you get to give people good news. And these vaccines are really, really good news. When the FDA started first laying out the groundwork for what the threshold was for approving a vaccine, we were looking at something, you know, something that was about 50% effective in either sort of soothing the most intense cases or preventing disease as acceptable, 50%. And now we're looking at two vaccines that are in the 90% effectiveness range. That's really saying something. I think we can expect those numbers to change a little bit. For now, these vaccines are really looking far better than anyone expected. So both of these vaccine candidates are classified as an mRNA vaccine. What exactly does that mean? Can you explain this type of vaccine's attack mode? Yeah. So an mRNA vaccine is actually a pretty new technology. We have never approved an mRNA vaccine in the United States. But basically what happens is that there's uh, the the vaccine itself delivers a small sort of genetic blueprint for a piece of the coronavirus. So in this case, that's the spike protein. And, you know, once your body is given the instructions for how to make that spike protein, it produces it, which then trains your immune system to recognize that aspect of the coronavirus and fight it off should it encounter it in real life. It's a pretty new technology. We have a couple different kinds of vaccines in the works. But one of the big takeaways, I think specifically from the Pfizer vaccine trial, is that we were able to achieve you know, a very, very high degree of effectiveness by just teaching the body to recognize that one spike protein, not the whole host of other features of the coronavirus that you might see with other vaccines. So basically that tells us that we might continue to see positive vaccine trials, not just from other mRNA vaccines, but from other vaccines using different types of platforms that aren't just specific to the spike protein. So it seems like the spike protein is sort of like a key aspect here, but it doesn't, you know, it's sufficient on its own. Anything else perhaps might just be bonus. So these are two of the front runners in this huge race. How do the two compare? What are the key differences between the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine that are worth noting? Yeah, I think it's a little bit too early to tell. There are some key differences, though. So if you look at the Pfizer vaccine, the temperature at which the vaccine needs to be stored at to travel is very, very low. Um, And that just comes down to the sort of fat casing around the mRNA itself, just sort of a different proprietary thing there. But you do have to have very low temperature, something around negative 80 degrees Celsius to, to transport it. And it can keep for less time at, you know, stable, you know, normal refrigerator temperatures. The Moderna vaccine, on the other hand, we know that it can stay stable at sort of normal, you know, the temperature that would be maintained by a refrigerator for far longer. So I think ultimately it can be kept for about 30 days at negative 20 degrees Celsius, which is about negative four degrees Fahrenheit and six months at negative 60. So that will be a big advantage for a vaccine rollout. So that's another big thing. The Moderna vaccine in terms of people from the U.S. is also part of Operation warp speed. The Pfizer vaccine is not, but the U.S. still has a deal with Pfizer to distribute the vaccine as well. But honestly, they're both looking pretty promising at this stage. I guess the main question people have now is it has to do with expectations. What do we know about where we actually stand in relation to this light at the end of the tunnel in terms of availability, accessibility? Where do we stand thus far? 
Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So one thing with mRNA vaccines that you have to take into account is the fact that we you know, aren't used to making them. They can actually be made quite fast. The trick will be you know, to scale up production to the point at which we'll be making a lot of vaccines. So it's going to be a game of distribution for sure and scaling. That's also sort of pulls in the other point of that we are not done looking at vaccine candidates. We have two that we know right now. But given the fact that these are going so well, we may have an even larger supply as more vaccine candidates sort of reach the phase three stage and hopefully prove to be, you know, as effective. So we are not done in terms of the science here at all. You know, we have some significant challenges ahead in rolling out this vaccine. But at the end of the day, we're going to do it. And there's going to be a vaccine, which probably felt a lot more nebulous about a month ago. Emma is covering it all as it all unfolds. You can head to Inverse.com to read more of her coverage. As always, thanks a lot, Emma. Yeah, no problem. New research suggests a recent measles outbreak may be a teachable moment for the present. Up next, why it's not enough for some people to be vaccinated when illness tears through a community. And how in order to truly reach herd immunity, everyone needs to get the shot. They've developed enough community immunity that they're no longer having the pandemic because they have enough immunity in New York City to actually stop. I challenge that, uh, Senator, because I want to please, sir, I would like to be able to do this because this happens with Senator Rand all the time. You were not listening to what the director of the CDC said, that in New York, it's about 22%. If you believe 22% is herd immunity, I believe you're alone in that. That was, of course, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, heard here during a Senate hearing in late September 2020, pushing back on Senator Rand Paul's claim that New York had reached herd immunity. As he explains, not exactly an easy task. The World Health Organization notes that about 60 to 80 percent of people need to be vaccinated to get herd immunity for COVID-19. The idea behind herd immunity is that if enough people are vaccinated, even those who are unvaccinated, are protected as the disease becomes less common. Case in point, before 2019, the United States was extremely close to achieving herd immunity for measles. Then, a measles outbreak tore through 31 states. According to research published October 2020 in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, this outbreak, while much smaller than the case counts driven by the novel coronavirus pandemic, is a teachable moment for the present. It shows that even if 99% of people in one small city are vaccinated against measles, there's still a chance that outbreaks could occur because of unvaccinated clusters. It suggests that it's not enough for some people to be vaccinated when illness tears through an entire community, and that in order to achieve herd immunity on a community level, everyone needs to get the shot. Here to explain more is Inverse's Emma Betwell. Hey, Emma. Hey, Tanya. How are you? Great. So you write about how this recent outbreak of the measles can serve as a teachable moment about the importance of vaccinations. What does the latest research tell us? 
Yeah, I think that the measles story was this really great success story for uh, vaccinations. And then we saw sort of that success fade in and out for a brief moment in 2019. So we have a really, really effective measles vaccine. So you get two doses of it and it's about 97% effective in preventing disease, which is really, really quite good. And by 2000, measles was eliminated from the US, which means that the disease still exists, but there hadn't been continuous levels of transmission. So it was really difficult to get the measles and pass it on to some someone else. But then, as you probably remember, in 2019, we started to see a measles surge again in Washington state um, in these sort of pockets of unvaccinated populations. And I think that kind of spoke to the fact that even if the level of vaccination overall in a country is very good, even close to our herd immunity threshold of about 95% for the measles, if there are pockets of communities where that vaccination rate is quite low, the disease can still sort of find a foothold there. As for this herd immunity, can you break that down a little more? What does it take to truly achieve that? Yeah, so that's actually kind of up in the air right now. So the question is, with something like the measles, we know that that disease is really extremely contagious. The measles, basically one person with the measles can infect up to 18 others in the right circumstances. And the best estimates for COVID-19 was about 2.5. That was at R naught number that is still sort of debated. So obviously the coronavirus is very contagious. It's not as contagious as the measles is. Measles can linger in the air for extremely long periods of time. It's extremely infectious. So we know that the herd immunity threshold for measles is extremely high. With the coronavirus, we really don't know. And I think the lessons that we can learn here is that putting one single number on how many people need to, va- to be vaccinated you know, around the world or even within a country or even within a city is going to be harder than it looks because it really depends on sort of how many people are going to get that vaccine in the first place and the distribution of people who may not get that vaccine if they're all concentrated in one area, there is a chance for outbreaks to still happen, which is sort of what the authors of this paper modeled using measles as an example. So armed with this information, how can we best proceed in this collective effort that we're in to resist COVID-19? Yeah, one of the things that the authors of this paper mentioned that could be useful is to get more granular data when it comes to vaccination rates. And this is stuff that already exists, so we could use school district data to sort of you know pinpoint places where we might see an outbreak uh, or a low vaccination rate to start with. And I think this is sort of part of a general push. People want more specific guidance for their communities, not just countrywide, because we know that although transmission in the country is extremely high at the moment, I mean, we've seen record numbers of cases this fall, people are looking at their own individual communities and trying to gauge their own risk tolerance. And a lot of that depends on what's going on around you. So I think that more granular data is going to be a huge help there for our transmission as with vaccination. So ultimately, looking ahead, how can we take the proactive measures needed to put us in better shape for the future? I think the, I mean, this doesn't change the big picture of how to control the virus right now. I mean, really comes down to like social distancing, wearing masks, responding to closures if they have to happen. So I think that having that vaccine is just the first step. We have to roll it out. We have to ensure that enough people actually get the vaccine to even get us near that herd immunity threshold. And we have to know what that herd immunity threshold is for every community, not just these large swatches of the country or the world. As always, Emma is covering the very latest research as it becomes available. You can head to inverse.com for more. Thanks a lot, Emma. Yeah, thanks, Tanya. (laughs) 
Head to Inverse.com to read more about the latest COVID-19 vaccines. You can find links in the show notes for all stories we talked about today. If you agree that science and facts matter more than ever, give us a rating and review on iTunes to help more people find The Abstract and other podcasts like it. New episodes of The Abstract are released three times a week. Find old episodes and more original reporting on science, innovation, culture, and entertainment at Inverse.com. Got something to say? Email us at theabstract at inverse.com with any questions, suggestions, story ideas, and anything else on your mind. Look for The Abstract Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. For Inverse, I'm Tanya Bustos. Thanks for listening. <laughs>